0: way at a combination of our youth camp and family vacation. Uh, I, again, I was gone, but through the miracle of technology, I was able to keep up online with um, Jim's messages, and I I very much appreciated his perspective and his approach uh, as an educator to uh, the first few chapters of of First Thessalonians. And so if you don't currently attend adult education classes on Sunday mornings during the school year, starting in September. I hope that hearing Jim over the last five weeks will encourage you to think about checking those out as he and several of our other teachers present those on, um, on Sunday mornings. So I just wanted to start by saying thank you uh, to Jim for his service over these past few weeks. So again, before I forget, I do, if kids haven't already left for Children's Church, can head out that direction. So as we turn our attention to our passage for the day, I want, I want to begin by taking a couple of, of brief surveys. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hands in response to a few questions, and I encourage you, invite you to sort of look around at, at the answers uh, to these. So first question is, I want you to raise your hand if you were born in Minnesota, Minnesota native. All right, good, good portion of us. All right, you can put your hands down. Um, I want you to raise your hand if you were born outside of the United States. If I see the same person raise their hand for both. All right, we got a couple. All right. Um, let's see, what was the next one? Uh, I want you to raise your hand if you are an only child. Only child. Okay. I didn't expect to see that many here at the only children. Um, Let's see, uh, raise your hand if you've ever been outside of the United States. Okay, I'm glad to see the people who were born outside of the United States raise their hands. We have a good appreciation for geography. Um, all right, last one. I want you to raise your hand if you've ever broken a bone. Or broken a bone. Okay. Now I'm sure you've noticed as we looked around at the various answers to these questions that we had different answers to each of these questions. Everyone in this room wasn't born in the same place. Not everyone in this room has broken a bone. That Our experience in these things is different. These things place of origin, family of origin, medical history, travel history, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, They are not universal experiences. Each of us has a different story regarding them. Likely we have some things in common, but not everyone has the same experience. There are, there are very few universal experiences in life. Birth, all of us have been born. Uh, the need for nourishment and hydration, uh, and death. Those are just a few that I came up with that are universal experiences to all. Uh, those first couple, birth and the need for nourishment and hydration, there aren't too many mysteries surrounding those anymore. Like By medical and science, scientific advances, we have a pretty good understanding of the way that the human body works, the way that the human body develops in the womb, in the process of birth. There aren't a whole lot of mysteries about that. But questions are always being posed regarding death, and specifically about what comes after. Do we simply cease to exist? Do we retain any form of consciousness? Are we reborn into a different body? Do we join some collective energy that powers the universe, kind of the the become one with nature philosophy? These are just some of the, the things that people have come up to to try and answer that question of what happens when we die. In today's passage in, in First Thessalonians, Paul is addressing this topic. Again, I just want to s- stop and say, thank you, Jim. He, he got to leave me with, okay, what does Alex get to open with? Well, we're going to talk about death today a little bit. So thank you, Jim. Um, but Paul's going to be addressing this topic, and, and specifically an, an apparent question uh, that the Thessalonians have asked regarding what happens to our Christian brothers and sisters who have died. And that's where we're going to pick up today, uh, starting in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. So if you want to turn there as we uh, get started this morning. And, and, and as you're doing that, I want to, I want to address and, and recognize that death is, is a sensitive topic. Many have fresh or unhealed wounds that have come from the reality of death and the death of, of loved ones. Uh, it's not my intent this morning to be insensitive or morbid, but it is my plan to be frank and to be straightforward about it, because it is something that, it's, it's one of those topics that we kind of avoid, because it's uncomfortable. It is sensitive, um, and Paul's message on this topic is a message of hope. But nonetheless, it, it is difficult. And so before we even dove in, I just I wanted to address that. But let me pray for us as we, uh, as we dive into this, and I'll, I'll read through our passage for today. And so God, I do thank you for your word, that we can look and find wisdom in it, that we can learn how to approach every aspect of life and death and what comes after Lord, through your word. And so I pray for grace and peace, um, for comfort, and for encouragement, even for those who, who struggle with this topic or have fresh or unhealed wounds. For we know that you are a God of grace. You are a God who has power over life and death. Lord, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to be looking at verses, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 this morning. I just want to read through the passage in its entirety before we get started. So in verse 13 here, as we get started, we come to a change of subject from the first half of chapter 4, where Paul is talking about living a life that is in line with God's desires, that's pleasing to God, that this idea of maturing in morality, though I think the way that, that um, Jim put it. And we're shifting topics here. And one, one of the challenges that accompanies with studying letters, like these epistles that are true, letters, letters. Um, Two churches. One of the, the difficulties that comes with that is the fact that we are only seeing one side of the conversation. This is a letter from Paul to the church. And, and this probably isn't the only correspondence that's happening back and forth. And there are probably questions that Paul is getting about topics. And this seems to be the case here as Paul shifts his focus to the Thessalonians' apparent concern for their brothers and sisters who have died before the promised second coming of Christ. Paul says he does not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Sleep or or falling asleep was a common euphemism for death or dying in the ancient Greek world, the ancient Roman world. And Paul doesn't want the Thessalonian church to be ignorant of the truth of this topic. And this is important because it alters the way the believer views and reacts to death. And specifically, as Paul's talking about here, the death of a loved one, the death of a brother or sister in Christ. Paul argues that knowing the truth of this topic will help the Thessalonians not to grieve as others do, who have no hope. I've been to funerals and memorial services of both believers and non-believers and have seen this very different approach to grief firsthand. When I was in high school, a classmate of mine passed away shortly before my junior year. And this classmate, a close friend of mine, considered themselves spiritual, but operated under the belief that no religious or philosophical viewpoint was any more valid than any other. If you would have asked this person what they thought happened when a person died, they would have answered that they didn't know. And this was a belief shared by this person's family the majority of friends. My classmate's funeral contained some great memories of life, and it really was a true testament to the thoughtful, kind individual that this person was. But there was this deep-seated sense of sorrow that you couldn't help but notice. The cause of the sorrow was a lack of hope, as Paul talks about here on the part of my classmates, family, and friends. A lack of hope for anything beyond this life for my classmate. A lack of hope for ever being reunited with this person. As far as they were concerned, my classmate had lived a tragically short life. And that was it. And, and many of us have attended memorial services like this. And again, it's not my intent to cast a poor light upon my classmate who was a good friend of mine or, or this person's family, And, and I, nor is it my intent to, to dishearten those of us who've lost loved ones in similar circumstances, but it is the reality of grief without hope. And Paul doesn't want the church to have that view of death for those who are in Christ, Like so many other things, as we live out our lives, the believer's approach to death and the death of our physical bodies is completely different from the world's approach, which often consists of hopeless grief with perhaps the occasional false platitude to ease pain. The believer, on the contrary, can approach death, both their own and that of a loved one, with a measure of hope. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul describes his feelings towards his own death as he faces an uncertain future in prison. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. On the personal level for, for a believer, uh, the result of the death of our physical bodies that mean, means that we get to depart this fallen world. The pain, the sickness, the illness, all of these things that go along with it and are reunited with Christ, which Paul describes as far better, better by far. Now, of course, we can't fail to acknowledge that even though being with Christ Again, being reunited with him is better by far. Paul also highlights the importance of God's mission in our lives, that he has a plan for our lives while we're here. So the idea of, well, better by far, why don't I just do that? There's a mission as well. But that's the measure of hope. That's the hope that we long for. In this passage, however, Paul is not focusing on our deaths necessarily necessarily on the individual death of the believer, but uh, how we react, how we deal with, how we process the death of our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you recall the very first week of our study on First and Second Thessalonians, Jim mentioned that a major theme of these letters is the second coming of Christ and what the church should do as we await that moment. It seems that the Thessalonians were worried. They had some sort of concern uh, that the Christians, their brothers and sisters who had died before the second coming, were going to somehow miss out on it, that they were not going to be able to take part in the promises in the experience of the second coming of Christ. And they were worried about that. And so Paul uses the meat of this passage, verses 14 through 17, uh, to provide them with a solid theology, to remind them of the truth regarding the fate of those who have died at the second coming of Christ. Paul starts his explanation with a reminder in verse 14 of a core piece of Christian theology. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of Christ is a sign and a seal of God's desire and of God's ability to resurrect those who have died in Christ. Jesus was the first that he resurrected, but he will not be the last that God will raise in 1 Corinthians 15:20. Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits of those who have been resurrected. It says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. In biblical tradition, the firstfruit was the portion of the harvest that was reserved as an offering to God. It was taken first before any other harvest was taken, before any of the other harvest was set aside for personal use. It was a way of showing reverence in God of giving him what he requires, of giving God what he deserves. But it was also a way of saying that we trust God in what he's going to do in the future, God's future provision. We often hear this term, the first fruits, when we talk about tithes, we talk about offerings, being faithful in financial giving and trusting in God for future financial provision to meet our needs. But here we see the term used not in an agricultural sense, not in a financial sense, but in reference to death and resurrection. Christ's death was the payment required to pay the penalty for our sins to restore us back to right relationship with God. And the resurrection of Christ into a transformed, perfect body ensures our own resurrection into a transformed, perfect body. In that first fruit, we can trust in God's future provision of resurrection for those who have died, for our Christian brothers and sisters who have died, our loved ones, even for our own resurrection at his coming. You see, there's, there's a necessary connection between the resurrection of Christ and our own future resurrection. Christ had to be the first. That's the way that it had to happen. But because he was the first, we can be confident that he won't be the last. Paul is arguing that these two beliefs are dependent upon one another. If you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, following his payment for our sins, it follows that you would believe in the resurrection of his followers. New Testament scholar and biblical studies professor at Bethel University in St. Paul puts it this way. Uh, Michael W. Holmes. He says, For Paul, so close is the connection between Jesus and those who believe in him that belief in his resurrection carries with it as a necessary corollary, belief in the resurrection of his followers. Contrary to the concerns of the Thessalonians, the death of our physical bodies before the coming of Christ doesn't mean that we miss out on anything. In fact, if we look at Paul's description in verses 15 through 17, those who die in Christ might have a slight advantage over those who remain at his coming. It says, For this we declare to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord and the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So Paul cuts directly to the point here in verse 15. Those who in Christ who remain at the second coming of Christ will not have a leg up on those who didn't quite make it. And the imagery that Paul uses in verse 16 and 17 to describe the second coming is pretty incredible. Aside from Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday during Holy Week, there wasn't a whole lot of heraldry to Jesus' ministry. He often secretly moved around. The crowds inevitably found him, but he wasn't going from place to place to place with people going in front of him announcing, here comes Jesus, here comes the king, here's the trumpets announcing that he's coming. No, there wasn't a whole lot of that in Jesus' ministry. You know what? The heraldry that he had in Jerusalem didn't last for long, right? But it seems pretty clear here that Jesus' second coming is going to be very different. It's not something that you're going to be able to miss. The Lord will descend from heaven, announced by trumpets, accompanied by angels. He will put his power and his majesty on full display. With a word, he will raise the dead in Christ to life and all believers will meet the Lord in the air, never to be separated from Him again. I struggle to come up with fitting words to even react to that description, to even react to that idea, to that promise. It's incredible. It's unimaginable. Like many aspects of God, our language is inadequate, right? Just picturing what that will be like. What an incredible promise, and what an event to look forward to, right? Sadly, I think we we often fail to eagerly await this event. It's not that we don't look forward to things, anticipate them, talk about how excited we are with them about others. As an example, in 2008, Marvel Studios released the movie Iron Man, which started an epic, interconnected series of movies about several Marvel superheroes. Eleven years, 22 movies later, that storyline culminated in the recently released Avengers Endgame. I'm relatively confident that I heard more from my Christian brothers and sisters about how much they anticipated and were looking forward to Endgame than how much they anticipated the second coming of Christ. I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus here. I know we have some Marvel fans in the room. There's nothing wrong with being excited about movies or TV shows. I, I, I personally do the same with anything Lord of the Rings or Star Wars related. I could turn my 30-minute sermon into a 60-minute sermon talking about how excited I am about the upcoming Amazon Lord of the Rings series. I'll stop myself. I'll contain myself. I'd love to talk to you about it afterward. But we look forward to those type of things. And, and, and the reality is movies have the added advantage of having release dates, right? We know when we're looking forward to something. We know when that's going to take place. Jesus' second coming doesn't have one of those, as we're going to talk about next week. But the second coming of Christ will be the most incredible, the most exciting, the most joy-filled event in history, That's something to look forward to. That's something to talk about and prepare for. Again, more on that next week. In this passage, Paul has tried to put the minds of believers at ease regarding their brothers and sisters who have died and provided a means of encouraging those who grieve and even providing some assurance of our own future death. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, it's important for us not to misunderstand Paul here. This is not a command to refrain from grieving the death of a loved one. Paul himself in Philippians admits to the grief that the death of Epaphroditus would have caused him. It says, Indeed, speaking of Epaphroditus, he was ill and almost died, but God have mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow." Grief at death is allowed for the Christian. Grief at death is expected for the Christian. But grief with hope is also available to the Christian. This past fall, my my family lost both of our grandmothers over the course of about six weeks. My dad's mom, who our daughter, Elliot June, shares her middle name with, passed away on August 29th. The age of 96, and uh, my mom's mom, affectionately known as Graham, passed away on October 9th at the age of 99. I traveled to Michigan for both of their funerals. There were tears of grief at each, but there was also a sense of peace and hope on the part of our family because we had confidence, we had assurance in their faith in Jesus. We didn't grieve like those who have no hope because we did. And we do have hope, not only for the security of their eternity, those that we love, but also the promise of being reunited with them again. This is a hope we all share at the loss of a loved one in Christ. The hope doesn't eliminate grief by any means, but as Paul says, it can encourage us in the process of grief. The message of this passage should not only comfort us in our grief, it should do that, but it should also direct and inspire us in our ministry to those who need Christ. The promise and the result of being in Christ is incomparable, it's unsurpassable, and it's not something to be missed out on. Again, just look at that description that we read. It's my desire for this passage to be a comfort for you as it was in the early church but I don't want to just leave it at that as a comfort. This passage should be a challenge as well. And this this challenge that I want to leave you with this morning, take this passage, be comforted by it, by the truth in it, be excited, look forward to the promises that it contains, but let that comfort and let that excitement grow Let it grow a desire in you to share those things with those that need it. Too often we are content with our own assurance and the assurance of the ones, our close circle, our friends, our family. When instead we should allow that assurance to fuel our drive to share the most important information a person can ever have. And if you're here this morning and you haven't made a step of faith in Christ, I encourage you, again, to look at the promise that Paul describes here and consider if that's something that you want to be a part of. It's a free gift of grace to God, available to all who will receive it. If you have questions about what faith in Jesus looks like, or you just want to talk further about this, I would love to chat with you after the service this morning. I'm going to give preference to those who want to talk about that, to those who want to talk about Lord of the Rings. If you don't want to come up and talk to me this morning, grab one of my cards on the welcome table. Give me a call. Stop in my office during the week. I'd love to talk with you. At the end of the day, I want to challenge us all to look at the truth in this passage and ask ourselves, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to use this as we process our own times of Greece and how are we going to allow this to inspire us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everyone we meet? I want to leave you with that this morning. I'd like to pray for us. I'd like to invite the worship team up to close us this morning. So God, I I do thank you for your promises for the truth of Jesus, for his death, Lord, for his resurrection, that in that we can be sure of our own future in you, and the future of those we love who are in you. But Lord, I-, I pray that you would inspire us, that you would give us those opportunities, that you would give us the boldness that we need to take this message to those in our circles, people at work, people in our neighborhoods, friends and family, Lord, that you give us the words that we need, Lord, and to do the hard work that only you can do in the hearts of those that need you. Lord, we do thank you for Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.